0: I do believe people would have noticed
1: people would have noticed that we did have Greg Thomas kind of warming up and getting loose in the on deck circle in case, uh, in case you didn't make it back from your uh, evening nap.
0: Well, and it wasn't like a, uh, a pleasant nap. It's thinking uh, thing, whatever's going around, uh, I got it. And, um, it was that kind of sleep where all the lights are on bedroom doors wide open. I'm sleeping with my head at the foot of the bed. The laptop is open on the bed. I'd written, you know 80 percent of what i needed for the podcast and um just hit me like a ton of bricks
1: i have greg looking at the uh rundown and then your face shows back up in the uh, google doc is to say that you're back in the document and he's like is is keith back and i said it could be keith back it could just be that keith's laptop got nudged and woke up i don't know we have to see till he types something
0: well here i am
2: Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan.
1: Hello and welcome to D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The one with the guy asleep at the keyboard. And this is the week in which we get teams such as Mary Harden Baylor and Linfield and Wabash onto the field. It's also a week in which Alvernia has a chance to go 2-0. So does Aurora and Augsburg and a bunch of schools which start with letters other than A. It's a week in which the nest cat comes out to play and my voice <clears throat> not really coming out to play today so I appreciate everybody hanging with me. Uh, it's also the week in which a lot of schools uh, generally have game two, right? The coaches always say that teams make the most improvement between game one and game two. so
0: I feel like we say that every year on the podcast too, but I think my favorite thing about this particular week too is all the boundary crossing. Okay, maybe that's a weird way to phrase it, but I mean, we'll find a Wisconsin team in Maryland this weekend. Wisconsin?
3: Wisconsin.
0: Big school. Uh, Oregon team in New Jersey, a Jersey team in Rhode Island, California, and Minnesota, and a team named Pacific in Dubuque, Iowa. So sure, some teams like Huntingdon and Birmingham Southern or Hampton-Sydney and Christopher Newport are staying unusually close to home, but seeing that aforementioned Wabash lineup against a Wyatt team makes for interesting fodder. Can we dub week two of the Division Three season the great travel bonanza?
1: That definitely sounds like it could be a thing. It sounds just like the sort of thing that ESPN would use if it were covering the Division Three level. So thanks for joining us again. I'm Pat Coleman.
0: And I'm Keith McMillan.
1: And this Friday podcast is the one where we do all our previewing of the week that's upcoming in Division Three football. We thank you for tuning in. Back in just a moment. Folks, this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. The fan foams that you could purchase for your wall at home, your office, your your workshop. I don't know. You could maybe stick them in the rear window of your car. I don't know about that, but this is the uh, item that we've talked about on previous podcasts. It's this uh, foam, uh, layered foam construction Keith with five Division three schools, Mount Union, Johns Hopkins, East Texas Baptist, Mary Harden, Baylor, UW-Whitewater, pretty cool stuff here.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, we should try to get some other or more uh, Division three schools interested. It's essentially, I didn't want to use this other brand name last week, it's essentially like a fat head, but it's three-dimensional, and so it, if you stick it on your wall or, or it a cubicle at work, it gives you a little bit more, um, I don't know, what's the word? dimensionality yeah sure it gives you a little more dimensionality to your to your logo
1: yeah absolutely yeah we can definitely get more schools involved and i have to say that the guys at uh at uh, gotta have it heard your questions about where to go to actually purchase one and now you can find the info on their website. Go to gottahabitfanfomes.com. You can get a look at uh, the ones that are available. I mentioned the five Division III ones if you're a fan of uh, one of the nation's service academies. All right, the Division One ones, ones. But, you know, those, are, those count very much. Uh, you can see those on there as well. And if you have uh, feedback or ideas for schools to add, now there's contact info on there so that you can get your school involved in this as well. And uh, you can, uh, you know, try to pick out one for Misericordia or Crown. And I'm picking the random schools I can from various parts of the country. So go to the website, go to GottaHaveItFanfoams.com, And we thank them for supporting the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith, obviously a lot of games to get to this week, and we're going to talk about a bunch of them. But some other news that happened during the course of the week is that uh, Wash U head coach Larry Kinbaum, longtime head coach of the Bears, uh, former podcast guest, longtime friend of D3Football.com, announced that he's going to retire at the end of the year.
0: And this is uh, 36 seasons for him. He's got 213 career career wins, 593 winning percentage Ah, uh, with five seasons at Kenyon and then uh, at Wash U since 1989. Again, definitely one of the uh, one of the stalwarts of Division Three, and he's right in that group at uh, at 213 wins. Um, to where, if Wash U has a pretty nice season, he can uh, he can pass or or be right there with some other pretty huge D3 names. Some active, some not. Uh, Rich Lackner at Carnegie Mellon is is at two. 16. Steve Johnson of Bethel, 218. And uh, just, he's just a little bit ahead of Jim Butterfield. And yeah, the uh, the longtime Ithaca coach, Peter Mazzaferro, Bridgewater State, longtime Norm Ish uh, is still active. Uh, he's at 208. And um, there are a couple other names uh, that um, Coach Kenbaum will, will retire with around the same number of career victories as, including uh, Jim Margraf and Mike Dress.
1: Pronunciation 101. Univistic Mononbel Univistic Gallardi Germinario Gabley, Normesh You know you know how to
0: pronounce Normesh's name Normesh Esh I like, uh, for some reason I like say Ish
1: Yeah I mean that's I that's how it's spelled I was going to well now I have to I'm going to mention his name later because um well you know they're playing a pretty prominent game Uh but yeah so um Ken Baum has been there for uh, for obviously, as long as you mentioned, has kind of shepherded this program through, you know, the years in the UAA, in which you know they were in a conference that did not have enough teams to uh, get an automatic bid, and certainly not enough to fill out a schedule. Just uh, three other teams that they could play over the course of, uh, of a of a conference season. Then uh, a year as an independent, and now. Uh, In their second, third, I don't even remember now, Uh, uh, you know, multiple years in the CCIW and very much in contention for that conference title last year.
0: Yeah, I think that's what's interesting about that, that conference move is we've seen, you know, we've we've done this enough times or enough years now, Pat, to see teams uh, make a conference jump to try to fit, fix a schedule. And then they realize, oh, man, this is not a good fit. You know, we were 8-2 and two in this old conference, now we're 2-8 and eight in this new conference. And Wash U, I think, has raised its level of play as it's moved into more difficult uh, conference, and I think that's uh, pretty impressive.
1: Very impressive to be competitive in the CCIW because that is one of the uh, top conferences in Division III football over the past 20 years. Another item of news, just to note, uh, Coast Guard and Nichols uh, on Friday night has been moved up to 5 p.m. due to concerns surrounding eastern equine encephalitis. A rare but serious disease caused by a a virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes. Keith, I apparently have not been paying attention. Is this a thing on the East Coast right now?
0: I would not say that, um, but it is uh, an opportunity to to learn a little bit more about something that could affect you. Uh, This is your science moment on the D3 podcast.
1: Yep. so keep an eye out on that. If you don't know how to spell encephalitis, it's just like it sounds. We had some interesting feature stories on the site this week, Keith. Uh, I was very um, just kind of taken by the story about Tanner Fernung. He's the offensive lineman at Manchester who is a street artist. We had gotten a, a tip off about this story back in August when we were collecting information for preseason and for kickoff. And I like uh, reading. I like reading what the schools send. You know, we ask them if they have any feature ideas uh, about their team or teams in their conference. And this was like the top of the list for me. It's like, I got this. I just set it aside, put it on a post-it on my desk because I want to assign that as soon as the season starts.
0: Yeah, and for those of you who don't do um, journalism or any type of media for a living, the major part of all that reporting is, uh, is the actual reporting and writing of it. But a lot of times what you're thinking about when you, when you assign a story is, uh, is it illustratable? And this one illustrated itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great great photos.
1: Absolutely. I, I would definitely go encourage you to go look at the story on d3football.com if you haven't already. Scroll through the images that we included and uh, click on the link for uh, for Tanner's Facebook page for his art where you can see even more because there's uh, some some great stuff there and definitely worth looking at. And then, Keith, uh, we have talked in the past and we've written in the past about women playing college football. Uh, and the, the, uh, the I think it's fair to say the majority of the women who have played NCAA football have done so. At the Division Three level, Liz Heeston was a kicker for Willamette back in the uh, late '90s, actually before we even started this website. And now uh, Willamette and Laverne are going to have female kickers going head to head here on Saturday. As much as kickers don't go head to head, I know you're a strict constructionist on that, but you know, uh, cut me, <laughs> cut me some slack there.
0: It's funny, I did, I did have that thought. Every thought
3: of yours is a
0: there was a, of uh, a point in the week where, where. Um, you know, we got wind that, um, that the kicker from Laverne uh, had made a kick last week and, and you know she's female and I was sort of like, all right, it's 2019 like there's got to be more to the story than wow, a girl can kick. Um, you know I mean like I feel like we should we should set the bar a little higher at this point. but the fact that this may be the first time that each team in a college football game uh, has a as a woman kicking would be pretty impressive.
1: And the one thing to note about Willamette's kicker this year, who's Kyla Gordon, uh, she is the first uh, female kicker that Willamette has recruited uh, specifically as a football player. Their previous female
0: kickers have been recruited as women's soccer players. And she does kickoffs, extra points field goals, too, not just uh, the occasional field goal.
1: For Laverne, Mika Makaikau, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's as best as my Hawaiian can get. Uh, Kicked a 30-yard field goal in their first game last weekend. Is that a game that counted?
4: Yeah, they played a
0: real team.
1: Oh, with these California schools these days, you can't tell, right?
0: <laughs> no comment.
1: We got teams playing schools from Mexico. We got teams playing club teams. Yeah, Laverne played Woodworth. I'd say that counts. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Kevin DeWall, in his second year as head coach at Hobart, his alma mater, and uh, coming off of a big win, of course, against Brockport in week one. Coach, uh, congrats on the W, and uh, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So I know that obviously this is not uh, maybe a new question for you, and you've spent uh, obviously a lot of time at your alma mater as an assistant coach, but you know now maybe a year and a half in, what's it like to be back at Hobart?
4: Yeah, it's really great. You know, obviously a lot of time invested uh, prior to as a student athlete and then the years as an assistant coach and met a lot of great people and invested a lot of time there. So having the opportunity to come back and and follow in coach Craig's footsteps, but also to uh, kind of put my own spin on it has been great. And you know, it's 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 going well. Let's put it that way.
1: And that's a very Division Three thing, right, to come back to your alma mater and, in a lot of cases, replace the guy who coached you. So, you know, obviously you had a chance to have a professional working relationship with him for many years, but what was it like to then kind of come back and, and, you know, like take over?
4: It, you know, I still I still believe it's still his position to a certain extent. I mean, when you play for a guy like Coach Craig, Hall of Fame coach, and, uh, and then – coaching with him for 15 years as an assistant Uh, it's a a large part of who I am as a coach has come from those years developed underneath his tutelage and now having the opportunity to come back and he, he was great about it in the sense that making it clear that it was his time to step back and and turn the keys over to the to myself, but uh, you know, I check in with him all the time. We're really close friends, and uh, you know, and once a coach, always a coach. So he's been able to give some great mentorship, uh, even from his position now. But he was, uh, he's been great about making sure that it's um, you know clear to. Everyone involved that it was, you know, he was stepping back and and wanted to make sure that it wasn't like he was still meddling at all. But we we invite him around all the time. And and he's obviously been close uh, with the team, helping in any capacity he can. But he's been uh, phenomenal about, you know, still being a part of the program and and investing as much time as he did prior to and, and still doing that same way.
1: You mentioned he turned over the keys, and that just leads me to this next question. It's like, what kind of vehicle is the Hobart mm. football program? What did he? What kind of vehicle did he throw you the keys to?
4: what was great about it is, you know, even when I was away for those couple of years, we stayed really close, uh, both he and his staff. So I knew a lot of the players. And last year when I came back, that senior class, there were some guys who I actually had recruited. So there was still a connection there. But inevitably, there's there's always uh, when there is change, there's some things that. that you know, just aren't aren't exactly the same. So when it came back, it was a different squad, different team, and and I think uh, we had a good group of guys last year. But I think with inevitably, when there's change, there's some hesitation, some resistance that comes when you start to bring some new ideas. And I think that last year was a little bit of a transitional year. And I think Coach Craig kind of saw that even when he was stepping back that. You know, they lost some, some big weapons, um, some of the names of guys who've been two and three year starters. So it was going to be a different look of a team last year anyways. So um, this year, uh, I think this team's a little bit uh, more experienced than last year's team. And we're still, I'd say, a work in progress. I don't think we're quite at the same talent level and depth as where we were um, when I left a couple of years ago with, as an assistant. And uh, through recruiting, through development, we're going to try to continue to add to that. But Really like the group of guys we have, great character, young men who obviously are here for the right reasons, you know, true student-athletes of the game. And uh, I think last year's squad, we you know, we lost a couple of close games that maybe could have changed the outcome of the overall record, but more, more importantly, they're the right guys. And, and I think this year's group is, is trying to hopefully see if we can take it one step forward and keep the ship going in the right direction
1: you mentioned changing some things did you kind of phase in changes knowing that uh you know would you do something differently in 2019 as opposed to 2018 or was it all kind of you know i wouldn't say cold turkey right because you came up in the hobart program but did you mm-hmm. did, did you like intentionally kind of make it uh, an easier transition or were you just looking to kind of put your stamp on it from the get go
4: yeah i think uh inevitably I tried to have as much, uh, as a seamless transition as possible from coach Craig myself. And although we are similar in mindset and and aligned a lot of our thinking, just natural personalities and coaching decisions, there was going to be some, uh, intricacies that were going to be different between the two of us. And I think that kind of came out last year. And, you know, I think, we were going to be a little bit of a team of rebuilding last year, regardless if coach Craig was the head coach or if I was the head coach. So I think that transition was going to happen regardless. And it it did, there was a, you know, you you replace a a guy like Shane Sweeney at quarterback and Brandon shed and some of the weapons that they had on offense that were like three and four year players. A lot of those guys who had, you know, coached and recruited all the way through. Mm -hmm. Well, last year we had a lot of new faces step up and, you know, I think inevitably with youth, there's going to be some some growing pains that happen. So I think that was going to happen regardless. But I would like to think that the, you know the the standards, the, the the morals, and everything that we're trying to hold these guys to that that's not going to be much different. You know, the, the high expectations we have for our guys on and off the field, I think was consistent with Coach Craig, and we're just going to try to continue to raise that bar. And I think that if you take away you know, some youth, some injuries, which obviously can can botch up any anyone's plans to have a great season. I think that kind of came into play last year. So this year's team, uh, I don't think it was necessarily a whole lot of wholesale changes. There were things that we were doing last year, but you know, maybe, you know, obviously it's still early in, in, in this year's team. yet. So we're still developing as we go. But I'd like to think that we're trying to just continue the the whole bar process that we kind of put in place last year. And, and hopefully we're a little bit more efficient at it.
1: It would be hard to have a bigger turnaround in terms of week one results from 2018 to 2019 as you guys did, right? Lost to Brockport last year by a score which maybe I won't even name, and then uh, <laughs> this year beating them by the score of of 33 to seven.
4: Sure, and and I think in, in anyone that's ever been a part of the game understands some games, you know, the score doesn't always indicate exactly how it was played out. Last year's squad, we took a very young. Uh, I would almost say like an infant type Hobart team uh, and went in and played on the road against a team that was bringing back a ton of experience from, uh, you know, the year prior when they were a final four team. So I think Brockport was still a very good team this year. And we, we obviously capitalized on some things that last year, those, those bounces and those plays went in their direction. So um, sometimes, you know, I take a step back, you know, usually the score is never as good or never as bad as, as it looks sometimes. And we, You know, you take away that game, which we grew up a lot from last year. Sometimes the balls just weren't going to bounce our way, and and we didn't play well enough to win that game last year. But – I also think we grew a lot from that game on throughout the season. You know, always looking for a continual improvement, and definitely found ways to come back with a you know a good squad that that last year's week two, and that's what we said to our guys this year. You know, obviously the the game went in our favor. We played much better on all three phases, and if we do that, I think we're going to give ourselves a good chance to to win. Uh, hopefully against any quality opponent, um, especially a team like Brockport, but they are also are now lost a lot of their players from last year and had some new faces in this year. So I think you can't put a price tag sometimes on experience. And then, you know, you look at the turnovers and some of the things that we capitalize on this year, you know, Brockport's going to be a solid team. And I know that they're going to respond, you know, moving forward, you know, for this season. And at the same time, we quickly put that game behind us and said, that was one game. Now, what do we have to do to go out and prepare for another quality opponent this week?
1: You mentioned how difficult it is to replace a quarterback like Sweeney, and you now have Hoffman in a second year as starting quarterback. What are the sort of things that, A, that you've seen out of him so far that he might have improved upon, and what else do you want to see out of him here in 2019?
4: Well, I think the last year he literally, from game one to the end of the season, um, you could almost see his maturity coming in place, both physically from a leadership standpoint, decision-making, um, so I think that's a position that um, even if someone's you know feeling like they're ready to go, sometimes you need to go and just gain that experience and learn how to respond to a bad throw or a bad read. and you know, when things are going really well, not to ride that is the same as if things aren't going well. and you know, he had some uh, injuries last year that actually Dave Cruz in our backup was able to get some quality experience as well. So I mean we were fortunate even in a year where, you know, things didn't always go our way that we had two quarterbacks that were ready to go and and each of them progressed as we've gone through the spring, through the summer workouts, and then through our preseason camp this year, you know, it it gave us now, in our opinion, two quarterbacks that at any time can go in and and hopefully be more poised with their decision making and kind of carry that momentum when things are going well. And I think that showed a little bit on Saturday, even though, you know, I'm sure Ryan wants some of those throws back you could just tell he was playing with a little bit more of a confidence than he would have, you know, a year ago in that position.
1: And Brockport has to want some of those throws back as well. What <laughs> yes. how did you, you feel about how your defense did on Saturday? Uh,
4: I was really really excited. And, and you know, that's uh coach Backus and our staff, they did a great job uh, going in and you know, as, as your know, your week one opponent gives you a lot of time to prepare because, you know, in the back of my mind, we had the you know, the sour taste of how it turned out last year and, and knowing that they were going to have some, you know, very talented on offense still, but some different faces needed to step up. I thought that this year's defense had guys and in, in, in some more of the right positions last year because of some injuries. We had to move some guys around and a lack of depth with some youth mixed in. Maybe we were playing some guys out of position, out of necessity. Well now we, we came back with some experience. We were able to move some guys around and if we stay healthy, I, I kinda like, you know, the group that we were able to to put on the on the field. With a little bit more depth, you know, we're still a couple positions where we're hoping to get some guys back who've been out with some injuries. But really was really pleased with not just the, you know, obviously the execution of it, but the energy, the focus. Um, you know, we're going to always try to, you know, hold that standard very, very high. And, and there's no doubt in my mind the defense came ready to play and, and really set the table for us to you know, be successful on Saturday. They, they set up the, the offense with great field position on a day where, honestly, offensively, we didn't play as well as I thought we should have and could have. The defense definitely uh, carried that momentum.
1: And you guys do not get to escape Joe Germanario altogether, right now. You have <laughs> him in your league. what What was your uh, What was your take when you uh, found out that he was coming to Ithaca?
4: Well, it was. Uh, I, I knew Joe from recruiting him in high school, and him and his family I knew he was a very talented player. You know, didn't really get involved into too much on how it happened or what happened. Uh, just knew that he was a very talented player and. Um, you know obviously we saw him last year at Brockport Uh, he had a very good game uh, against us and you know obviously it looks like right now got off to a strong start uh, for his team at Ithaca so good news is we don't play them um, until you know weeks down the road so honestly we haven't really thought too much about it Um, I know he's a very talented player and I know that uh, you know Ithaca is going to have a solid squad when we play them and but uh, in the meantime, we're going to have to keep capitalizing on defense and making sure that we're progressing as a unit to to be able to take him and, and that group on when we do face him in a couple weeks.
1: And let me ask you about just the nature of Hobart and William Smith. It's not you know it's not the only obviously group of colleges in Division three that is like this, but it's it's really fairly unique. So tell us a little bit from your perspective, you know how. Uh, you know, how the Hobart-Williams-Smith kind of conglomeration works and, and just what it's like, for example, as a member of the student body.
4: Yeah, it's a very unique situation. And, and I believe, and, and from my experience just from recruiting, I think we're the only school in the country that's called the coordinate System where we have two colleges on the same campus. Um, over the years, most of the other schools that have had an all-female school and all-male school, they've kind of merged into one. Where HWS Hobart and William Smith, essentially, it's there's Hobart's an all-guy school. William Smith is an all-female school for the student body, but it's a co-ed atmosphere. So there's actually two colleges on the same campus, which, uh, again, to my knowledge, I believe might be the only one in the country that does that. Most of the time, it's a you know a mile or two down the road, or they've merged right. into one. Right. And it's it's a way that if you were on campus, you'll see there's actually more females than males on campus. It's a co-ed atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's really a way to honor two very unique traditions with the Hobart campus and the William Smith, um, campus and student body. But it's, uh, at the same time for those students that, that want that co-ed atmosphere, you're going to see the classes are co-ed, the, the dining hall, the, the overall everyday experiences is really co-ed. So it's a, uh, unique intricacy, like I said, of, of kind of honoring both traditions. And, um, but if you, if you see it on campus, I think most people it, it's, it's more of the the naming than anything, you know. Obviously, there's not a William Smith football team at this point, but if you were to go to a soccer game or basketball, you see that both the Hobart and Williamsmith Smith teams, there's a couple connections, you know, from different deans' offices, um, you know, different student governments, and overall the alumni. But at the same time, um, a young lady graduating from William Smith College is going to have the same opportunities and, and viewed the same if they're applying for the same job as someone with, with a Hobart degree. Uh, so it's 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 really like I said. It, it, a unique opportunity um, and in the recruiting world, I think a lot of our guys um, really embrace the, the history that's behind, you know, obviously a rich tradition of Hobart college along with, you know, the, the women's opportunities and, and when William Smith, uh, you know, kind of created their own school there on um, basically the, the campus as well.
1: All right, Keith, long story short, uh, obviously a great first week win for Hobart, a lot of stuff still ahead of them, including the entire conference schedule.
0: I, yeah, it is. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about it in, in the Monday podcast and for good reason. And uh, I, I think it's nice to have Hobart back. You know, it's that's been a program that was prominent in a, in a conference championship contender for several years, fell off a little bit in, in recent seasons. And I think this one um, put them back on the map.
1: And it's time for our games to watch, where 5D3Football.com staff, contributors, and general D3 football pundits take us around the key games in Division three this weekend. And I'm starting off... With number 14 Illinois Wesleyan at number 23 UW Lacrosse. That's also how Illinois Wesleyan is starting the season as well, while UWL began last week with an overtime win at home versus Concordia Moorhead. Last year, the teams were in the same situation, with Lacrosse having a game under its belt, and IW lost that one 34 31. This game also starts Norm Esch's 33rd year as head coach at IWU. So the Titans haven't played a game yet, but they have a lot of the familiar faces back, with Brandon Bauer returning for his senior year at quarterback. After throwing for 3,234 yards and 24 touchdowns last year, his top four pass catchers are back as well. On defense, they have seven seniors and three juniors slated to start, including quarterback Trevor Kepke. So even if they haven't played in a game which counts this season, they won't exactly be new to the hitting another player part. Face an Eagles team which struggled to run the ball last week, getting more than a quarter of its rushing yards on one play, and that was a play for just 18 yards. So, while lacrosse also completed fewer than half of its passes, uh, with Evan Lewandowski going 13 for 28, the question remains whether that was rust from the first game of the season or, you know, perhaps growing pains for the first game under a new offensive scheme. The important thing was it was a game, it counted, and lacrosse won, and now the Eagles have a chance to make it 2 0.
0: Ish, not each. I've got number 22, Wesley, at number 13, Delaware Valley. Both teams are coming off easy breezy road wins in their openers, but are about to get a spike in level of competition. When these teams met on August 31st of last season, Wesley hit pass plays of 78 and 69 yards in the third quarter and rushed for 203 yards overall on the way to a 34-10 win. But it was the Aggies who wouldn't lose again until the playoffs while the Wolverines were nipped four times. This year's Wesley quarterback David Morocco and Ruhan Peel, who had 12 catches last week, should find a little tougher sledding against a Del Valle defense led by Michael Nobile, who had 6.5 tackles for losses in the opener. Kane gained only 126 yards against Del Valle. Uh, the Aggies might emerge from this game as the MAC favorite, win or lose, and they play Stevenson next week. Wesley might be the NJAC favorite, which means each team is vying for a win that will factor into playoff criteria since it will likely boost strengths of schedule and count as a win over a regionally ranked opponent. So this game has a lot more riding on it than just this week's Pratt. And now, let's throw it to Adam Turr, who's previewing Linfield at Rowan.
2: Rowan dropped its season opener for the first time since 2014. But that may be a good sign, as that is also the last time the Profs earned a playoff berth. Rowan will need to find a way to win the endjack, maybe by three-way tie again, if it wants to return to the postseason this year. That's because the non-conference schedule is brutal. After dropping the opener to an improved Widener program, the Profs host perennial playoff power Linfield this week before traveling to a resurgent Hobart in Week 3. The Wildcats are making what could be the longest road trip of the Division III season, traveling 2,935 miles from Oregon to New Jersey. This will be Linfield's season opener, and the Wildcats enter the 2019 season hungrier than ever. Their nine-year playoff streak was snapped in 2018, and the program failed to win at least nine games for the first time since 2008 but the nation's longest consecutive streak of winning seasons remains intact and could extend to a whopping 64 seasons this year. Of course, that must start with victory number one. In order to keep the streak alive, the Wildcats will need to find their identity quickly. Junior quarterback Wyatt Smith returns for his third season as the starter, but lost his top running back to transfer and four of his five starting offensive linemen to graduation. Rowan fell behind early in its opener, but kept clawing back in what turned out to be a nearly even game statistically. Michael Husney passed for three touchdowns, but the Profs will need to get more out of their rushing attack. That is a big ask against a Linfield defense that historically yields very little to opposing ground games. A 3,000-mile journey to open the season is a challenge, especially with so few experienced starters returning. The Profs, with a frustrating loss already on their ledger, will come out feisty. We should learn a lot about both teams in this unusual cross-country non-conference matchup.
1: Thanks a lot, Adam. Now we send it out to Greg Thomas.
3: Coming into 2019, Salisbury found themselves with a hole in their schedule due to former NJAC member Frostburg State's departure to Division II, while Wisconsin Oshkosh had a hole in their 2019 schedule due to a general division-wide reluctance to play against them. Thankfully, these teams with a mutual open date agreed to play, and we wind up with a rare regular season matchup of East and West regional powers. Both teams entered the game off week one wins, however, those wins came in very different fashion. Salisbury scored early and often while overwhelming Albright, while the Titans survived a Carthage two point attempt late in the fourth quarter to eke out their win. Salisbury started their 2019 campaign clicking offensively. The Seagulls ran for 360 yards while also mixing in three passing touchdowns to their potent option attack. The Titans struggled in their opener. Playing a bit of musical quarterbacks with Kobe Berghammer and Steven Mackinnon, Berghammer ended with the better game, but the Titans are still establishing an identity offensively. While a lot of teams will manufacture adversity as a motivational tool, Oshkosh can pull the adversity lever with impunity this week. Salisbury played their opener on Friday night, giving the goals an extra day to prepare for this week's matchup. Already behind today, Oshkosh also has to travel to Maryland, which is going to cost the Titans another day of practice and prep. That extra day of practice is doubly important this week because Salisbury's option offense is kind of a one-off for the Titans as they don't see option offenses annually. And if that isn't enough, this game is going to kick off at noon locally, which is a 10 a.m. start in Wisconsin. There are a lot of things about this game week that are working against the Titans that they will have to overcome to come back home with a win. On the other side of that coin, Salisbury has all of these advantages. They don't have to travel a thousand miles. They aren't sputtering offensively. They have extra time to prep and scheme for a very good opponent. They aren't playing in what feels like a weird time. If there was ever a moment for Salisbury to cash in on a high-profile game against a Wyatt contender, it has to be this weekend, doesn't it? Oshkosh certainly presents a different caliber of opponent than Albright, but the advantages are plentiful this week for the Seagulls. In the end, we've got two good teams from opposite sides of the D3 map with December aspirations playing the kind of interregional matchup we wish we saw more often. While these teams are both just outside of the top 25 this week, this game should produce a playoff caliber contest to get your D3 game day started.
5: Back to Pat and Keith.
1: And we wrap up the whip around with Frank Rossi.
5: From InTheHuddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. It's time for the 40th edition of the Transit Trophy game between number 19 RPI and WPI this Saturday at 2.30 p.m. what is a true sign of engineering schools, the trophy is a Transit Theodolite, a device that replaced a railroad compass for many railroad engineers. Okay, enough about that. While RPI owns a 26-12-1 record against WPI in the Trophy series, WPI seniors remember their team's last victory in 2016 when WPI beat RPI 19-7. WPI has not been able to muster more than 14 points in each of the two subsequent games in the series. What makes this year's game a little different is that WPI is fielding its largest ever senior class with 35 seniors suiting up for the team this season. That large class has plenty of talent like senior running backs Sean McAllen and Connor Field, who combined for 237 yards of offense and three touchdowns last Friday night in WPI's 51-0 victory against crosstown rival Worcester State. RPI had a decisive victory in Week 1 against Allegheny 52-14, but they only outgained Allegheny 502-404 to yards. The real difference maker was that the RPI defense forced the loss of four fumbles during the game, with one being returned 100 yards for a touchdown late in the game by RPI's Ryan Skivington. RPI junior quarterback George Marinopoulos has playoff experience for the last two years, and he played well Saturday, accounting for three touchdowns, including one on the ground. However, the key for RPI this Saturday in Worcester will be RPI's defensive unit against the experienced running backs of WPI who should be able to provide a balance for senior quarterback Julian Nyland on offense. Connor Field said after WPI's win Friday night that his team will be fired up for this game, stating that he remembered the great feeling from WPI's win in his freshman year and the toughness of the close loss in his sophomore year. After his junior year injury benched him for the game last year, he and McAllen will look to be difference makers in what should be a close game between two teams slated to have strong 2019 campaigns. Back to two guys who didn't need a cola commercial to remind them to stay until the end of football games, Pat and Keith.
1: Now it's time for On The Spot, the weekly in-podcast game show where each of us makes up some sort of question that we then put the other On The Spot about and it's uh, Keith's turn to start it off.
0: All right, Pat, here's your challenge for this week. You can talk about any game you want, any games you want, as much as you want, but you cannot enter any circumstances mention a skill position player. Strictly strictly, linemen, defense, and special teams, as soon as you mention a skill position player, the segment is over. Go.
1: Do I have to mention, can I just not mention any players' names?
0: Sure. <laughs> All right. It makes you happy.
1: <laughs> I'd probably pass on that. Define for me skill
0: positions. That would be quarterback, running back, wide receiver.
1: Okay, good. So like if uh, if I know that Jefferson Fritz is not only going to play safety for Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday against Albright, but he's also going to be apparently the starting punter, we can do that.
0: Absolutely. Why would a punter be a quote unquote skilled position player?
1: I was thinking about a safety. I understand you may have to have some skills to play safety.
0: Well, I was going to say, as we as you get pushback from everyone, every position is a skilled position. And that's true. Uh, There are no unskilled. You know, if it was easy, everyone would do it coaching cliche number 3420 i don't know if i can stall for you anymore mayard baylor is a good place to start because there are a lot of a lot of uh topics to talk about besides skill positions but you'd be remiss to not mention what's happening under center in that game so maybe you don't want to start there
1: i i can't talk uh, about any of those players uh, who are uh potential um quarterbacks in that game or players who are apparently injured running backs who are not going to play in that game. Uh, this is another one of those games where, uh, of course, Albright has a game under its belt and Mary Harden Baylor doesn't. That didn't seem to matter much last year as Mary Harden Baylor won that game 91 to nothing. I'm kind of scrolling through my um, preseason All-America team here just to find names of, uh, of linemen. I hope that's okay.
0: <laughs> well, uh also, you you uh, robbed Albright of their one touchdown in that game last season. I believe it was ninety-one-seven. Was it really?
1: Oh man! Yeah, I feel uh, I feel bad. My apologies to uh, to the Lions. What uh, what fun that was! Um, I'm gonna skip around and uh, does tight end count?
0: No, I specifically left that one off there so you could you have a chance at this game.
1: Excellent. I appreciate that. The last time the Catholic played Georgetown, I was a senior. Ooh. At Catholic, I was a really bad student broadcaster. And uh, tight, tight end Jim Opfinger was the offensive star for the Cardinals on a wet, rainy day in which Catholic lost 10-0. Um, he almost got into the end zone once, and that was about as it w- as good as it was as uh, Georgetown took the uh, Stephen Dean Memorial Trophy and then refused to play Catholic for all of those years where Catholic was actually good. So um, I think... That Georgetown is going to luck out once again this year because, uh, from the looks of things, as it was last Saturday, right?
0: Yeah, Catholic uh, lost to Kenyon in a very tight one.
1: Cal Llewellyn, the cornerback for Center, and his team takes on Maryville on Saturday. Maryville is coming in after having already played, of course, another uh, you know NCAA playoff team, another team from the SAA, a pretty good non-conference schedule and maybe one of the best non-conference schedules in the USA South. Averett obviously doing uh, pretty well for itself in that regard as well. You know, Llewellyn is a guy who, as a cornerback, got a lot of picks early in his career, and now they just don't throw in his direction. So uh, that's just uh, something where you look at the end of the year and you see a guy who only has like one or two interceptions on our All-America team. That is why he would be one of those guys
0: that's famously how we uh didn't necessarily have tony beckham on our radar back in 2004 or whatever it was when he got drafted by the titans he was a uw stout cornerback who um, basically nobody ever threw near him and uh when when the scouts saw him live or when they put on the the tape and they maybe even watched tape back then um they saw a guy who, who had nfl talent and uh you know sometimes when you're doing the All-American team, you you just get the guy with the most interceptions.
1: Yeah, we totally whiffed on that, but that was uh, I think it was even 2003. We have changed how we do things. We uh, we ask those coaches now, who are the people who you game plan to throw away from, and those are the kind of uh, answers we get now, so that we don't have to uh, we don't have to screw that up. So our apologies. Uh, let's see how about Susquehanna taking the uh, field. This week against number seven ranked Johns Hopkins being led by Daniel Shelton. Daniel Shelton is uh, spelled D-A-N-I-A-L. He's a cornerback for uh, for Susquehanna, who are the River Hawks. in case you uh, had not caught up on that over the course of the past couple of years. Um, you know, a guy who uh, it was like one of the last people who I was able to confirm was actually coming back to the team this year otherwise uh you know he might not have been on the list we try very hard to make sure that all of the people we want to put on the preseason all-american team are actually returning because you know sometimes that's a thing that doesn't happen
0: that's a f- another famous uh, old reference uh we got germany woods once
1: uh i i don't know if we got germany woods what did we got something though man and you know that's you know it's it's a thing that happens and it's kind of embarrassing and there's uh, sometimes not much we can do about it. How long do you want me to keep going? Naming guys who are uh preseason All-Americans here.
0: <laughs> I say, if you, if you can get this next one, we'll allow you to pass the game and, and move on. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, you know, we talked about uh, Brockport quite a bit in the last podcast. And uh, of course, uh, I guess a little bit when we talked with coach to wall earlier uh, has should have a little bit easier going against Framingham State, although Framingham State obviously has been very competitive in past post seasons. So that's not an automatic. Brockport had, of course, a bunch of guys on the All-Region team last year. Uh, they had nine. They have just one of them back, but that one is Alex West. He's a, a soft, a senior linebacker. You remember how big and how good that Brockport defense was last year. Obviously, they didn't do quite as well in terms of on the scoreboard this past Saturday, but uh, you know uh, that was in no sh- uh, small part due to all the interceptions that uh, the Brockport uh, offense threw five of them to be exact. In the grand scheme of things, Brockport only gave up 191 yards of total offense. And Kevin DeWall talked earlier about the, uh, you know, some of the frustrations that his offense saw. So even in a game in which you lose 33 to seven, that doesn't mean that your defense played poorly.
0: Who, who threw those interceptions, Pat?
1: Who threw those interceptions? Well, Jason Helwig. Oh, oh no! game over, ah! game over in the middle of the sense i realized hey wait a minute uh, <laughs> did you ask a direct question counselor
0: <laughs>
1: all right well, uh, that buzzer is really loud wow
0: i'm uh, also happy that we've got we're able to get a few Uh, linemen defensive and special teams players in this podcast hey that's
1: uh that's important it is never our intent to not do so um you know we have been since day one back in 1999 always uh, making sure that for example our weekly honor roll includes includes offensive linemen and even now 21 years 21 seasons later conferences don't do this and i don't understand why offensive line counts man this is important and i still think that uh you know, I'm I'm just surprised, Keith, that we are basically the only ones recognizing them.
0: You're talking about on a week-to-week basis.
1: On our, uh, for example, on our uh, on our weekly on a roll, the D3Football.com team of the week, yeah,
0: yeah, and and I I also like when you see um, the positions actually broken down to center, a couple of guards, and a couple of tackles too, instead of just being like. A whole line, and then you get five tackles.
1: Yeah, exactly. That is, uh, we made that change in our postseason teams uh, a few years back. um, And we changed uh, to not just have four defensive backs, make sure we had two corners and two safeties, or, you know, three safeties if the week warrants. That's something that we do. um, And to have both defensive ends and defensive tackles, because obviously those are two positions where if you're comparing. D ends to D tackles solely on numbers, then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna skew pretty heavily one way,
0: yeah. And and then I think you also get into um situations where you have teams that are playing three, four, two, four, five, so you have positions with different names. And and you know, if you really wanted to get specific, you could go edge rusher and interior rusher, but I think the way you got it's fine. Well, I get annoyed now because it's like the in thing to um put edge as a position, E, D, G, E, like real big, but it's not you know it's not an acronym <laughs> that is man we
1: are pedantic aren't we
0: that's definitely a high, high pedant level sure.
1: time for me to do the uh do the best i can here for you in uh, on the spot and uh this is a game called nescag stack or, or maybe nesk stack And uh, I know you love you some NESCAC, and and we are certainly glad to have them back in action this week. Keith, what I want you to do is please pick the five teams who will win NESCAC games this weekend and then stack them from top to bottom in order of scoring
0: margin. Oh, okay. Okay. I like this. I like it. Let's first call up the games. Good call. Tends to work better that way. And we have a wonderful website in which you can sort your... um, Scores page by conference, <laughs> so you don't have to look at the entire division at once.
1: Tell me the name of that website.
0: Oh, it's uh, D3Football.com. You scroll right to the top, scores, and uh, find your conference. Yeah. All right, so the games are Hamilton at Bowden, Bates at Amherst, Colby at Wesleyan, Trinity at Tufts, and Williams at Middlebury. And to be quite honest, I don't know. These are maybe two competitive games. Here, um, the the teams that sort of vary m- the most year to year in the NESCAC, um are your 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 middle level, your Middlebury. Uh, Williams has fluctuated from being s- some years threat to go eight and They went through a tough stretch and they seem to be back last season. And then Wesleyan and Tufts are, are fluctuate as well. But generally, the the main schools, CBB, the Colby, Bowdoin, and Bates are are. Um, they struggle a bit, and so does Hamilton, Amherst, and Trinity almost always at the top of the conference. So if you look at these matchups, it would be easy to just say, "Just I'm just going to pick the, the best ones. Um, they have to go in order of mar- margin of victory, so the biggest first or yeah. tightest game first.
1: Yeah, biggest margin first, I would say.
0: So biggest margin first is going to be Amherst and Bates. Uh, we'll take Amherst in that one. And... Um, yeah, no no explanation needed. They're generally top of the conference. Uh, they have that innovative offense that's predicated on getting plays off uh, very quickly, and they recruit well. One of your one of your best known schools in uh, in Division three for its academics. Second margin, I think. I think I like Wesleyan uh, this year, and uh, even though Colby uh, sometimes uh, is uh, is pretty good, I think we'll take Wesleyan for the second margin. Um, now I'm, I'm stuck between Hamilton and Bowden and williams Middlebury on the, uh, on the second margin of victory, mostly because I think those two games are, uh, are actually toss-ups. So um, and I like Trinity and Tufts being the closest one, even though I'd, I'd take Trinity to win there. Um, let's take uh, Williams and Middlebury for the, uh, the third margin of victory. Hamilton and Bowden say that one would be pretty close. Uh, we'll, get, we'll talk about that one briefly later in the pod. And Trinity and Tufts, the closest of the five games.
1: All right, so if you're keeping score at home, if you want to keep score at home, that's great. Uh, We will keep score for you as well, but uh, Amherst, one, Wesleyan, two, Williams, three, four is Middlebury, and five is Trinity, Connecticut, over Tufts. Thanks for playing NESCAC Stack. And like I said, we will keep track of it every week. If we're going to make a prediction, we're going to call ourselves out on it. And on Spot Check, we look at last week's on-the-spot results. I asked Keith to pick three teams to win where the school shares the same name as a former U.S. president or where a former president is an alum of the school. Keith picked Franklin and Marshall for Franklin Pierce. Uh, I picked St. John's, uh, not named after John F. Kennedy, but they have the same name. And uh, George Fox for George Washington. And F&M won. St. John's won uh, fairly famously over UW Stout in a narrow game, but George Fox lost to Redlands
0: 35-19. I spent a lot of last week realizing how many more president names I could have, uh, have, could have picked. And also, of course, you know, in the case of, say, Washington and Jefferson, which was playing a prominent game last week and is actually named uh, the presidents. Yeah. Uh, that's their mascot and actually named after presidents as opposed to, uh, you know, Franklin Pierce, Franklin and Marshall, not the same Franklin.
1: No, um, but uh, you could have very easily picked Washington and Lee to beat Dickinson, and that was a surprise that that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, we, well, we talked a little bit about that uh, in, in the pod, so, um, you know, that, that Dickinson has had these really rough openers and, uh, and uh, not so much on Saturday against WNL. Pat, you were asked to pick a quarterback we haven't talked about who would make an impact in week one. Pat, you picked Rippon quarterback Cormac Madigan, and that didn't quite work out. The sophomore was nine for 23 passing for 63 yards and two touchdowns, which was probably not a positive impact. The ground game is more his style, but he only had 32 yards and seven carries and not much surprise then that Rippon lost to Augsburg 36-26.
1: Yep. So every time we do a uh, on the spot, we will do a spot check and you can hear it right here on this podcast. That sounds like a roulette wheel to me. And the wheel lands on the number 96. And we have Carnegie Mellon versus Geneva, a game that is a uh, that's a President's Athletic Conference uh, game, right? we got to spin out a uh, preview of this game and then come up with a rivalry trophy. So uh, the first thing I know off the top of my head for uh, Geneva is, of course, uh, they had a All-American running back last year that is graduated. Uh, this is a team that uh, loves to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. They're an option team. And so uh, that's going to be a a change of pace, obviously, for them this season under a new quarterback. I don't know a ton about Carnegie Mellon this year other than the fact that they uh, had a slow start and then came back to beat MIT last week.
0: Yeah, well, I actually was impressed that we had already mentioned Rich Lackner once in this podcast. Um, (laughs) Carnegie Mellon uh, generally likes to run the ball as well. So you get um, you may get one of those super fast two or two and a half hour games. Um, Not like that one season where they changed the rules and the clock kept running and all the games were two hours and 20 minutes. That was weird. Um, But he could get a pretty fast one here. Geneva ran for 282 yards last week in a 41-27 loss to Mount St. Joseph. Mount St. Joseph won that game by rushing for only 14 yards. So they had the, uh, the passing game going and they were able to throw for 385 and a key touchdown with three minutes of 14 seconds left in that game when Geneva had cut it. To a seven point game. So that's actually for for an opener for Geneva, which was an NAI powerhouse when it came over to to D three and the pack and, and sort of because we had seen NAI NAIA powers in the Northwest, um, specifically your Linfield and your Pacific Lutheran, seen teams like that come over and immediately Uh, have that sort of success. I kind of thought it might happen in the case of Geneva and uh, in the case of Westminster, Pennsylvania, it really hasn't happened in either of those cases. Those teams have been middle-of-the-road pack teams. Carnegie Mellon, you mentioned uh, week one, a 24-7 winner at MIT. Definitely super high average uh, SAT score for football players in that one. (laughs) And also uh, Carnegie Mellon um, scoring three times in the third quarter to pull away there. Just uh, 12 first downs, didn't really have a great game uh, offensively, 275 yards total offense, and uh, about evenly split between passing and rushing. So they uh, have some room to improve this week, and I think when you look at the pack after, after you're uh, – you know, Thomas Moore is no longer a member, so you're looking at W&J, you're looking at Westminster, and, uh, and I think there are chances for, for teams like uh, Geneva – to, uh, to, to pop up the standings a little bit, and, and these are the type of games you have to win uh, if you want to do so. Same thing for Carnegie Mellon.
1: The only other thing I have to add is that uh, last year, this game uh, took place at Carnegie Mellon. It was scheduled to take place on October 27th. That was the day of the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh and in kind of generally that same neighborhood, so it was uh, it was postponed. They weren't able to play it until Week 12. They were able to make up that game. Um, I'm also looking at these schools uh, 42 miles apart, but you have to take both i79 and 279 and 76 to get there. I'm just thinking about our our uh, rivalry trophy. I don't have a good name for it.
0: Yeah, I didn't have a great one for this one either. Uh, the uh, so the Random Pennsylvania School Bowl, the Carnegie Mellon Geneva. I don't want to say anything insulting to the academics of Geneva, but Carnegie Mellon is one of the great really one of the great institutions in uh, in our country. They they also have a great, um, one of the surrounded by buildings fields, yeah. um, which is, uh, I don't know if you'd have to be a long-time podcast listener to uh, to appreciate this as much as Pat and I do, but um, we found over the years that there are sort of, you know, a handful of, of field types, and a lot of the fields are stuck off the, at the end of campus near the train tracks or near cemeteries. And as Pat and I would go to these new fields, we would sort of, put them in these categories and (laughs) Carnegie Mellon has a great, um, has a great uh, surrounded by buildings field. How about the, let's see the tartan golden tornado, right? You're playing, You got the tartans versus the golden tornadoes. There's gotta be something in there.
1: Let me, let me take that and run with that for a second. So how about the golden tartans uh, is uh, I'm taking a spinning off of that. And I'm thinking of my Greek mythology and I'm the worst Greek mythology person in this family, but uh, there's something about uh, Jason and the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece, right? So maybe there's a, uh, I don't know, if a, um, a Golden Fleece cup or Argo cup or something like that.
0: Is that too yeah, I like deep? The, go- the, go- the
1: Golden Kilt.
0: There you go, right? A tartan is a kilt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look
0: we'll at yeah, that. The Golden Kilt trophy.
1: All right. Well, we just well, it seems like
0: it would be kind of heavy to wear.
1: It probably would be, uh, but we definitely swatched our way through that one. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. I start the one-liners off with a one-liner. I rattle off the schools or the games, and then uh, I look for uh, Keith to respond in, you know, like one-liner less, more or less Trinity, Texas at Harden Simmons.
0: Yeah. The Tigers have Barry and center after this game, and they could fall to one and three by losing Harden simmons and then the next two games, and they'd still be a fringe top 25 team, potentially.
1: Widener at Lycoming.
0: In our annual acknowledgement of the game that started it all, Lyco's coming off a respectable 38-26 loss to Susquehanna, and Widener's coming in off a 38-28 win at Rowan.
1: UWW at Concordia Moorhead.
0: Yeah, the Cobbers might seem insane for opening up with the top two programs in the top conference in the country, but if your conference is pretty darn good as well and the path to the playoffs includes games against St. Thomas, Bethel, and St. John's, I understand their logic.
1: Millsaps at Westminster of Missouri.
0: Millsaps quarterback Amron Jeffrey must be licking his chops after Westminster allowed six touchdown passes last week to Nebraska Wesleyan's Jonathan Curtis.
1: And then Hamilton at Bowden.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming this is on the list because it's the NESCAC Job Security Bowl. See how easy it was to come up with a uh, trophy for that one? There you go. Dave Murray left Alfred for Hamilton, and BJ Hammer started at Whittier, then went to Allegheny, and now has completed a full cross-country move by taking the job at Bowdoin. Those two teams face off this week.
1: If you follow us on the website... God, I hope you do. Jeez. Quick Hits is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games. We've got six people giving six answers to questions in an attempt to give you something resembling a set of opinions. I want to say, actually, right off the bat here, I am super thankful for uh, Greg Thomas, a member of our team, uh, for taking this over and shepherding Quick Hits this year. It's one less headache for me, and I certainly appreciate that. So last week... Uh, we picked, uh, of course, uh, six questions. We always ask, "What's going to be the biggest? Uh, uh, what's the biggest upset of the week in terms of a uh, top twenty-five upset?" And then we always ask, you know, uh, other questions as well. But uh, last week's biggest upset, Keith definitely nailed this in terms of his pick of Hobart beating Brockport. Adam Turr hit on Aurora beating Saint Norbert. Uh, picks of RPI, Bethel, John Carroll, and Center, not so much. Uh, We asked people to pick a bottom 25 team to win, someone at the bottom end of our preseason ranking from kickoff. A lot of people seized on the game between number 232, Alvernia, and number 235, Gallaudet. A bunch of us took Gallaudet, but Keith was on it again and got Alvernia correct. Yeah, Adam also got number 238 Cornell in a non upset win against lower ranked Iowa Wesleyan. But I have to give props to Greg Thomas. His pick was the best, taking number 240 Kenyon over no, number 183 Catholic.
0: Yeah, sorry to hear that about your alma mater, Pat. Yeah, I can tell you really are.
1: Uh, we talked about playoff teams starting off on the wrong foot in 2019, and, and some picks were pretty clear, such as Hanover and MIT facing higher ranked teams. I took St. Norbert to lose to Aurora, so I got myself a bonus upset pick in. Greg took Denison to lose to ONU, but of course, Denison was one of the surprise teams of week one, and Ryan took W&J. That's Ryan Tips. haven't mentioned his name yet on this one, uh, but the president's got it done versus Wittenberg. And then we wrapped with asking which coach would have the most successful head coaching debut. Everybody picked a coach that would win, uh, including uh, Wes Beshorner at Eau Claire, Mike Baraniak at Winer, Jason Aubrey at Concordia Chicago, and Greg Chimera at Johns Hopkins. Out of those, though... Bonus points to Ryan and to Greg for picking a Widener's win versus Rowan because I think that was the least safe of those picks.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the, the Denison uh, upset of ONU. On the Monday pod, Jack Hatem, the Denison coach, was our guest.
1: Yeah, and if you uh, did not listen to pod number 240, go back and listen to it. That's in your feed as well. And you can see this week's quick hits on the website by noon on Friday. Keith, we're down to the pick six. Back to pass, looking in the near corner for Nap, and it's intercepted! Zahar at the goal line, returning it to the 30! LaGrange at Berry. Berry. Uh, Hampton, Sydney at Christopher Newport.
0: I say Christopher Newport bounces back from its uh, week one, drubbing at the hands of North Central.
1: Huntington at Birmingham Southern.
0: I like Huntington, uh, on the road. Muhlenberg at Dickinson. Uh, Dickinson was a nice winner in week one, but I'm uh, going to pick Muhlenberg. Uh,
1: Eau Claire at St. Norbert.
0: Boy, well, St. Norbert uh, losing to Aurora was one of the big uh, shockers in Week 1. Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think I'm going to go Eau Claire. I, I think uh, Coach Fishorner uh, and, and uh, I think the Blue Goals look pretty good in Week 1. St. Norbert um, struggled a little bit, and uh, the road doesn't get any easier.
1: Well, you got one more. We got Puget Sound at Redlands.
0: That's a tough one because both of those teams were uh, were impressive winners in week 1 Redlands over George Fox, Puget Sound over Claremont Mud Scripps which won the Sky Act last season. That game is at Redlands and I'll take Redlands.
1: And this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 241 released on September 13th, 2019. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the weekend. If you like this podcast, you know the deal, right? Please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or, you know, wherever you find this and other fine podcasts. This will help other Division Three football fans find it. You can also leave comments on this specific episode on the blog page, or you can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering the post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Emergency backup guest co-host is Greg Thomas. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. And thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr, Greg Thomas, and Frank uh, Rossi, including as well as our guest, Kevin DeWall, and sports information director, Ken DeBolt, for their time and their assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan.
0: All right, we go take some Sudafed and go to sleep.
1: Oh my god, Sudafed and DayQuil or maybe well not NyQuil. I still have a, a couple of hours of editing to go. Anything that's just going to blast all this gunk out of my throat. I, it's not like it's not like the good stuff where I'm going to be all Barry white all of a sudden and do all the good voiceover work for the year. This is just crap.
0: Well, it is that time of year for uh, for you, for me, and for everyone
1: else. Indeed. So everybody, hey, stay safe out there, stay healthy. And stay awake and share the good news of Division Three football.
5: There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.